welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Joining us tonight is Aaliyah Whiteley, an author whose work has been described as stark, poetic and forthright, and it's certainly not easily classified. We wanted to talk to her about how established ideas of gender can be challenged, the relationship her books have to the natural landscape and the merits of speculative fiction. So thanks very much for coming along, Aaliyah. Could you Hi, thank you. yourself a bit? Sure. So I'm Aaliyah Whiteley and I write stuff. Um, <laughs> like you said, not not very classifiable stuff, but uh, I've been I've been writing for ages. I've written in lots of different genres. I write a bit of nonfiction for places as well. Um, I just really like writing. So I do a lot of that. OK, well, we'll jump right in, because as you just mentioned, you write novels um, and, and novellas and shorter pieces. So you've got quite a, a range of different styles. Yeah. Um, so what when you when you're coming up with a book or a novella or a short story, what do you feel like you conceive of first? Do the characters uh, come before the theme of the story? Because your themes are quite I feel like they're quite strong and they, they come through quite strongly. So do you feel like you start with um, you have something to say or do you have the characters a stroll into your head? No, and I think it's it's definitely the characters and it's it's more specific than that. It's it's about the voice. So I usually just uh, sit down and start writing. I do my uh, first drafts in longhand and just wait for a voice to come along that absolutely captures me. And then I just want to know everything about that journey. So nothing's really planned. It's very just sort of organic to start with. Um, and the theme kind of grows from the voice. So it's not, yeah, I know that it would seem very theme driven, but um I don't tend to think a lot about theme as I'm writing, I would say. I'd say it's all about the voice and being true to that voice and kind of trying to find out what, what kind of journey they're on. Excellent. Um, so we've noticed that um, when I was reading The Beauty, for example, mm. that um, layers and, and landscapes in particular seem to be recurring themes in your work. I yeah. um, what exists beneath and between the everyday, the accepted and the glanced over. Did you consciously set out to kind of peel back these cultural layers or does this happen naturally in the course of your storytelling? I think that's just part of um, to do with the stories that I really love to read. And I've always loved stories with layers. So I think when I came to start writing, that's just something that was always, always going to be there where you're kind of unpeeling levels of character and uh, levels of event to to get a sense of what's really happening underneath um i was always really fascinated with books and stories that do that um so it's not something that i was consciously planning to put into um my writing but it yeah absolutely it's it's there it, j it just seems to be something that i'm i'm fascinated with and so it works its way into things i think you talk about how how you kind of come across your themes and and putting these kind of wider concepts almost like very naturally but is that something that you then have to work out really when you're sort of going over doing the second drafts do you have to sort of shape them or is like does it sort of come to you fully formed and if you say that it comes fully formed I'm very <laughs> jealous <laughs> I wouldn't say that it comes fully formed, but it's I'm I don't want to put like a handle on it or a, a label on anything that I do. So I like the sort of different elements to themes, like you say, with layers, layers to themes as well. So 
quite often I have sort of questions that I'm asking myself on a different subject once it becomes clear that the voice is kind of dealing with those sort of areas. And then I just try and work in as many different um, questions that I feel that I don't have answers to um, into into those topics. And that kind of produces the layered effect um, over time. But yeah, I mean, there's a first draft and then the second draft is typing it up and putting it onto the computer. And at that point, I may decide that it needs, like with the book I've just written, um, there was a, an entire section that's just present tense. And then you decide that it needs a past tense running through it to really bring out the kind of themes and questions that you want to talk about. So I guess it's it's a layering approach that happens in the second edit, uh, hopefully picking up on uh, subconscious ideas that have been sort of flying around in the in the first draft. Yeah. I'm really rubbish at kind of picking apart how how it works and I'd be reluctant to totally pick it apart because then I'd, I'd feel like oh, I don't know if it's going to get up and run around and cluck anymore, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a chicken. It's got to keep moving. can't believe I just called my work a chicken. <laughs> yeah. That's a, the best metaphor I think we've ever heard on here. Thank you. <laughs> but you know, if you fiddle, you fiddle about with the chicken too much, then it's not clucking anymore and laying eggs, is it? So, give give it space, a little bit of feed. Yeah, move on, move on. So, I mean, as well as your other works like Loosening Skin, you've got a story in the upcoming anthology, This Dreaming Isle, which yeah. is a collection of British um, dark fancy folktales. Mm, and some of yeah. your work feels really quite British with a very strong sense of place, such as the Valley of Rocks and the Beauty, the Village and the Arrival of the Missives. Yeah. So is this a case of write what you know, or have you made a decision to re-explore things linked with the British identity? I think it's more than I'm exploring things to do with my identity, because quite often they're just places that I've lived. So uh, the story in um, this Dreaming Isle is a, a village in Lincolnshire that I lived for a while. Um there just tends to be, I mean, a lot of my work set in Devon because I did grow up there and I feel like it belongs to me. So I'm allowed to <laughs> write about it, whatever, whatever. I don't feel actually that um, I belong to it. I feel quite specifically that it belongs to me, which is interesting. I think um, like the version of it that I've created through writing about it belongs to me. Um, maybe people feel that when they create these kind of fantasy universes, you know, like that's all their territory. I don't I don't feel that the Devon I write about is accurately Devon in a way. I feel like it's quite a lot of my own imagination. I think a lot of writers feel that. And certainly that's the way I feel about the Yorkshire Dales when I write about it. Sure. Uh, and anything I've set there because I've grown up and you just you pick up on the nuances of a place and places and settings within novels can be just as important to characters in creating um, interactions and atmosphere and things like that. So I think you're right. I think everybody experiences a place differently, but it can definitely come through in your writing when you really, you know, live in a place and, and see all the little bits that maybe other people don't see. Yes, absolutely. And um, I feel like I'm almost drawn to these places where I've lived to explore my experience of them more than to try and accurately record anything to do with them. I seem to set work in places where I've lived or it's in space. I mean, there's no in between. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I, I'm really trying harder to kind of explore places that I haven't I haven't lived at the moment to, to stretch myself a bit in that regard. But um, certainly I find myself continually just drawn back to Devon 
because of my my constant recreation of it like you recreate your own past over and over again which is an idea that I really wanted to explore with the loosening skin so yeah and it's kind of this way that you reimagine what's gone before by journeying onwards and because I don't live in Devon anymore every time I revisit it or go go back down there or whatever it seems to become a slightly different place again so I was interested in those ideas but I don't have a strong sense of um collective identity or like a truth to a place at all I don't yeah that doesn't that doesn't really feature for me I'm getting kind of like Alan Garner vibes here because um, I'm just a big Alan Garner fan and grew up reading kind of the those the weird stone of prison yeah those fantastic books in the owl service and he's another author who place and landscape is so integral to his work and it just takes on this otherworldly quality and also a, a really earthy quality at the same time like the whole um it's exactly it's exactly what I love about Garner's work this he yeah. manages to incorporate these kind of they're so grounded um in and and the, the the landscapes that he talks about are they hold so much history and the history is not always human but it, yeah you know it goes back you have this feeling of kind of a great ancientness in, yes in, like embedded in the earth and that's yeah and humans are the, you know that then they're not the integral thing that they're not they're not the key feature of the landscape and I'm certainly drawn to that idea I think I remember reading Alan Garner at school and just I I think that just sort of sinks in deep when you get it uh, at a young age and uh, yeah I would certainly say that's an influence if you have a a really strong sense of place then like me are you really attracted to folk tales because they always have a really strong sense of place and associated with local legends and um yeah places as well yeah, in fact, I have a a really old, uh, kind of beaten up book, which is um, Devon folk tales, and my favourite is the Hairy Hands. Um, have you ever come across the Hairy Hands legend? I have, but tell me your <laughs> version of it. Oh, good. Um, so the idea is that um, if you're on the bike, you know, coming back late at night from the pub and uh, suddenly the bike overbalances it would be because this ghostly pair of hairy hands has grabbed your what's it called oh i'm sorry i've lost handlebars thank you yes <laughs> grabbed your handlebars and steered you off into a ditch it's absolutely nothing to do with the like alcohol level or anything like that <laughs> it's absolutely the curse of the hairy hands that can oh, grab steering good. wheels and grab handlebars and steer people off the road dangerously i love that story um, I, uh, yeah, I don't know why that's particularly Devon. Does it appear anywhere else around the country? Well, there are various versions, obviously, the hairy hands. Um, right. I'm trying to remember um, all the different variations because they're all so similar. They all tend to, to verge into one. But, I mean, yeah, mm. hairy hands at crossroads or I remember those one where um, they came through a ceiling and things like that. And oh, Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to see if I can find it and, and email it to you. But uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I'd love to see it. I I love that story. It's just I love it as it you know it kind of goes from there are terrible very variations of it where people die in car crashes and things because of the hairy hands. But there's also the guy coming back from the pub on his bike who just blames the hairy hands for falling off his bike. So I like it's got it's got breadth, isn't it? It has. You can, you can use it in lots of different ways there. Very the adaptable. Hands. Yeah, yeah, I like that about a folk tale. Okay, so moving on to like something we love to talk about on this podcast for obvious reasons. Sure. Uh, but <laughs> so women and female characters and addressing gender issues. So sure. in The Beauty, you depict a world without women. 
and yes. you know you reverse some of these established gender roles and I wanted to ask where that inspiration came from but also I found that quite interesting in that a lot of the kind of the similar narratives that I'm reading at the moment um, where they kind of comment on gender they tend yeah. to focus on the females so you know things like the power whereas it, the focus is very much on the women characters mm. so it's interesting that you wanted to address this kind of inequality of the genders but by removing women from the picture so I just wanted to to hear a little bit about yeah. that yeah the, the very first kind of steps towards that story I got the voice of Nathan the narrator and I really didn't know a lot a lot about where that story was going to go um, and then it became clear that he was kind of living in this community at first it had men and women in it and then an alien kind of presence came into the community and that I realized I was trying to write something that explored power structures and I really wanted to take a group of people who had power and take it away from them in a way so that the reader could go on that journey with them so quite often I think it's difficult to empathize uh, if you're in a situation of power, difficult to emphasize with people who don't have it. It's very easy to say, well, why didn't you just do this or do that? Or, you know, like like you have options. But the truth is that quite often these options aren't available to people and it's difficult to understand that. So I wanted to set up a situation where the power was taken away from a group and the reader went with them on that, that journey. Um, I don't really remember at what point it became about just being a community of men. Certainly the idea was about leaving a hole in the narrative and seeing what fills it. Um, so, And that's something I explored again with The Loosening Skin, um, the new book, where I what I did with that book is make love like a concept that's solid. Because I wanted to explore the reverse of that, the fact that we live in a world where love is not solid and we can't um, touch it or be sure if we're in it or, you know, it moves freely um, and it's all sorts of different ephemeral things. Um, and um, power in relation to gender, I think, is is quite often like that um, in a sense that it's difficult to find, but you know that you have it. Um, so I think, yeah, this is a really long winded way of saying that I don't really know where the inspiration came from. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it's really it was a very amorphous story and um, it. it ideas came out of all sorts of places and then once I had the idea that there weren't women in this community but I was exploring the idea of the hole that was left if you took uh, women out of society then I just really wanted to run with it and push that idea as far as I possibly could so every time I thought to myself oh I couldn't I couldn't do that that's really horrible then I then I decided to set out and do it um, because I really didn't think it was a story that could be published I wasn't looking I wasn't thinking in commercial terms at all. I just wanted to write it. Um, so, yeah, I just absolutely went went free with that idea without without boundaries. And that's that's what happened. It's a really remarkable book. Uh, so oh, thank you. It's fantastic. And any of our listeners haven't read it. The beauty is really one to pick up. Um, it's very, very <laughs> unusual. And you'll probably, I promise you, you will never look at mushrooms in the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel bad about putting off this generation of people with mushrooms. 
I really like mushrooms. Don't, don't, yeah, don't hold it against mushrooms. I had some mushrooms for lunch yesterday and I was thinking about it as I was eating mushrooms. And I was like, I'm not going to stop because these are delicious. I'm okay with household mushrooms, but when you're out walking and you see a weird mushroom now, Mm. you're kind of like, oh. And if I see yellow ones, I have to take photos of them, which is getting a bit strange because it's just the yellowness, isn't it? It's the yellow. I know. Yeah, actually, that that word. I mean, you didn't think that the word yellow could be so um, descriptive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why they're yellow, but it's really upsetting on some level. <laughs> I'm almost getting Simpsons vibes here. You know, like this yellow, yellow skin. <laughs> oh, that's why? a horrible idea, isn't it? They're like giant. Maybe there should be an animated version, like sort of Simpsonesque mushroom creations. Ah. Oh, yeah and we're not i'm sorry i'm sorry everybody that we're not selling it to you but we i, mean, I hope that we are selling it to you because <laughs> it's genuinely it is one of the most unusual stories i've ever come across and um you know as you were saying a few minutes ago about you know oh, oh no i can't possibly do that no 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 i can't do that do you know what i'm mm. gonna do that it, yes there are lots of moments in that book where you're like oh my god that actually yeah. happened <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's really gonna amazing. go there it was daring myself to kind of go just push the idea as far as as you possibly can and see see where it ends up so and I loved I loved writing it it was an incredibly freeing thing to write because just because you're doing that kind of just throwing everything out the window and thinking I'm just gonna go wherever this leads so I really enjoyed writing it I suppose that's the nature of speculative fiction isn't it that you know you're just gonna throw established modes and 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 kind of methods out the window and say you know I'm gonna just go where this idea is taking me and then you know this is sometimes it leads us to glorious and and unexplored kingdoms yes and other times you just have a draw full of failures is the truth (laughs) about it I mean it works both ways you know for every idea that turns out well there's another idea where I've just gone la 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 let's just put that in a drawer (laughs) but uh, that's that's great you know I I just love the freedom of kind of exploring the ideas and between genre as well because I love genre um, but I love the freedom to kind of pick a bit from one and a bit from another and swap between them and mash them together when I first you know realized that the book was going to be about this idea I started looking around for other books that may have done similar things and I found a lot of a lot of books that were every woman but one um, and I really didn't want to write that story where one woman becomes the focus of all this attention. And um, I don't I don't feel that that's really exploring any of the issues that I wanted to explore. There's a Frank Herbert one called uh, The White Plague, um, where really is a case of one woman being left alive and she's locked in a like a hermetically sealed chamber to try and I, I can't even remember what they're trying to do with her, really. But um I love Frank Herbert, but I really don't like that idea of, you know, everybody but but one. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I thoroughly agree. It's um, it's kind of reducing that one person to all of the preconceptions you have about women rather than mm. looking at women as a society in the whole. And yes. I think the problem with a lot of fantasy and science fiction is that they always do have, you know, one woman as the focus. We've spoken previously on episodes about how women don't seem to be able to form cohesive groups and supportive groups, particularly when it comes to science fiction and fantasy. There always has to be the lone woman. It's like, well, you know, there's the idea of sisterhood as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, there's more than what I I think it's a a problem generally where you kind of just say, right, this 
this society represents everything on a globe or, you know, this person represents every single characteristic to do with this kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, I like I like to think that we could do better than that. Obviously, we've been talking about beauty. Um, and in that, while your depiction of the maternal instinct in men is rooted in a physical transformation, do you believe that all men have maternal traits sort of outside of the narrative? Is it only that toxic masculinity teaches them not to embrace these roles? That's a heck of a question. Um, I think I think everybody has or doesn't have maternal instincts. And kind of it just, I think it's an individual thing and it possibly changes throughout your life as you grow and change. But I don't think it's a masculine or feminine characteristic in particular. I can see the argument for toxic masculinity making it more difficult to express. But um, being a parent and parenthood, comes with its own set of hormones because I didn't start off at all sort of maternal myself but I have I have my daughter now and now I'm the kind of person who goes ooh at babies in the street so you know um I think everybody's capable of change but um and I yeah I don't see it as a male or female characteristic I think I would just like to say that I wasn't maternal either I have my <laughs> daughter and I still don't go ooh at babies in the street <laughs> But I do know that obviously the maternal aspects for women and the paternal aspects for fathers, from what I've seen of myself, my family, my friends, it seems to manifest in a very different way. Um, So it's very interesting to see sort of men having um, feelings, emotions, and more importantly, reactions that are associated with um, sort of the maternal side of it. Like, for example, um, I, my husband always jokes about, you know, my daughter coming home and having spoken to boys in the playground and things like that. Whereas I just don't (laughs) think about that. I'm just like, oh, wow, she's not going out with all the girls and they're all talking about unicorns. (laughs) I think think it's a very different relationship. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't have that particularly with with my husband. I mean, we have sort of mutual concerns. He hasn't really said, oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm worried about something that you would consider to be a more masculine uh, point of view. But I'm, I'm not somebody who worries more about sort of feminine points of view either. So maybe we just, you know, got a different a different sort of balance to it. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I can certainly see the argument that society leads you down certain paths. And I see it more with her, actually, in terms of her experiences. When everybody in the class is doing a certain thing, all the girls are dressed in pink, as you say, or talking about unicorns. And so therefore she wants to do that, if only to find out what the fuss is about more than from any real sort of connection with that. So um, certainly there's societal pressure. Yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. The emphasis is on society kind of putting this, these forcing people into these roles or forcing yeah. women to adopt a certain behaviour and, and men to adopt almost the complete opposite and not. I mean, you can see it in our, you know, maternity and paternity holidays. Like why I think it's crazy that, you know, paternity is so can be so small. You know, yes. they think that two weeks is enough. Yeah, you know, whereas they give women, women a lot longer. And it's like that that kind of inequality. Yeah, it seems perfectly obvious to me that, you know, the both parents are just really important and needed to be there, you know, or any sort of parental figure without. I, I didn't feel that my daughter needed me more more than she needed my husband. Shall we move on and talk a bit about your new novel? Because you've touched on that already. Yeah. 
Um, so in the loosening skin, uh, people shed their skin every seven years, casting off memories um, as well as, you know, their, their past loves. Um, so you could say that the idea of perpetual reinvention is something peddled by the media, which pressures us uh, to change ourselves physically, emotionally, uh, even politically uh, to fit an agenda that might not necessarily be our own. Um, mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about novel? Um, what prompted you to explore these kind of concepts? Sure. Yeah. So the loosening skin is a uh, it's a detective story. Well, it's two detective stories um, that are connected, and it's it's kind of using the idea of a detective story about the self as well as um, a, a mystery that needs to be solved. So it's about. Yeah, I talked earlier about um, reinventing your own past and trying to find clues about your own past in order to make a picture of who you are as a person as you move through the present and I think it's it's quite a lot about that I think that we we do all change all the time um, and um, reinvent ourselves and reevaluate the past that was certainly something I wanted to look at um, so that was kind of very much in my mind as I was writing it yeah and also the pressure to be something that you're not um, to try and fit certain boxes. I very much wanted to address that. So it's a case of the first half of the book. Um, the narrator is a, a woman who's done a lot of different jobs and experienced a lot of different ways of living. But um, she has a particular issue in that every time she loses her skin, which is meant to happen about once every seven years, but in times of stress can happen more quickly, um, she feels a strong desire to kind of push away everything that she was before and start afresh, which comes with a whole range of problems uh, as you try and reinvent yourself over and over again, um, which she does with not much success, really, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I wanted to see if I could take all of those elements and, and make and make a cohesive whole out of that person without them really being aware of it. Because do you know how sometimes you're aware, you meet people and they... They have great personality and you can see that they're full of character and their own voice. But they may sometimes feel once you get to know them well that they're really not sure about who they are on many levels. Um, So that kind of difference between the internal feeling of being a personality and the external representation of being a personality was something that I wanted to explore as well. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? (laughs) This idea of reinvention you know uh, just throwing off everything that you were and then starting afresh and it does raise the idea of you know how fresh can you start you know because there must be parts of us that don't change that we there there are deep kind of essential parts that will probably end up manifesting despite our best efforts absolutely and I think in some ways it's easy to lose to lose touch with that or to not recognize the things about yourself that are stable and are just ingrained. Um, I was really interested in the ideas of sort of nature and nurture and, you know, how much of it is genetics and how much of it is from experience. Um, and again, this is just like a huge topic that you couldn't possibly hope to actually ever find answers to, but the questions that it generates are so interesting. Um, and I really just wanted to explore a lot of those questions. And the idea of the skin coming off every seven years was a great a great way to do that, because when they lose the skin, they lose um, love, uh, particularly sort of 
sexual love, um, all those sort of feelings go and then start afresh and to the point where they really hate the people they were in relationships before if they get strong, strong reactions to the skin shedding. Um, and that really enabled me to explore the idea of being in and out of love, of having this physical manifestation of love that you could say, yeah, that, that definitely was real. Yeah, it was all sort of really interesting, murky territory that I've, I've somehow managed to form into a book of 50,000 words. So, yay. Um, but I, I'm pleased with the fact that it's these two detective stories that reflect on each other. They kind of mirror each other in the journey of trying to make sense of who you are as a person, which is, I think it seems like something that's quite easy from the outside. It's easy to look at somebody and feel that you know them, but it's incredibly difficult inside to reconcile all the things that you are um, and to try and make that into a personality. I was wondering, because a lot of these, you, you keep talking about how you're asking questions and, and it's this kind of exploration of kind of the human condition, our experiences, you know, just constantly questioning what if do you think you would have been able to tackle those sorts of ideas without the speculative fiction element that you work in i don't know it just feels integral to it to me because i want to remove elements or play with elements that feel we associate with realism um so we take it for granted that the world is a certain way mm. and for me in order to ask the questions I need to take an element away and leave something for all the other ideas to rush into. So, yeah, I, I guess it needs. But I don't I don't think of that. I'm writing speculative fiction. You know, I'm not concerned with saying, well, what's the speculative element? It's just I don't I don't seem to have a line where I'm suddenly aware that it's become speculative fiction. It, like you say, it's just all what if, you know, what if. Uh, what if it's a world without women? What if we have porridge for breakfast? What if, you know, it's all what if. I don't feel this sort of, oh, well, that's that's territory that might be difficult to believe or that I've overstepped a line. I don't, I don't really see the line when I'm writing, I don't think. I mean, it's obviously speculative fiction tends to sort of be looked down on, you know, in terms of it's not literary fiction, th therefore it's somehow lesser or... You know, how how do you feel about some of these attitudes towards speculative fiction when clearly you see it as a really freeing way to look at the, the issues we face? Yeah, if I wrote a book that didn't have a speculative element, I would be absolutely fine with that. Um, and I read read freely through lots of different genres and don't I don't tend to think of genre particularly. Uh, I just... I just want to go free, and that seems to be offered by speculative fiction. But yeah, I I really don't think a lot about genre or the fact that I'm writing in genre when I'm doing it. And I don't I don't feel that one is better than the other, or that you know that we should praise this and say that that's <laughs> less important in some way. The beauty of speculative fiction is that. I I think it works well for for your kinds of stories, which you know really do examine a quite an unusual um, concept. Is that you know if you I just can't really imagine the beauty set in a secondary fantasy world because 
all of the world building you'd have to do would kind of detract from you know the, the central discussion that you're trying to have that the novel is trying to have that the, the characters are and 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 yet you know it's funny because you never really say that it's in devon possibly is but you you don't it never kind of comes across a place in that yeah book. It's, it doesn't have a name attached to it but you we know that it's it's our world like you it's not narnia you know like it's that's quite obvious yeah it is, it's but i think that's what's uh really good about speculative fiction because you don't it bridges the kind of gap between two quite hard extremes of of science fiction and fantasy who which come with their own you know we talk about this a lot on this podcast about you know they come with a, a whole range of tropes that you're expected to either kind of employ or subvert but sure. speculative fiction seems much more like a kind of open plane where you can just you know people can approach it not having yeah. to suspend their disbelief or think oh you know i'm not gonna enjoy this because it's fantasy um, mm. and and that seems to you know you want people to read a kind of high concept book with as open a mind as possible yeah yeah it's funny you say that because i i have had people say to me you know it well the beauty's set on another planet so it's not straightforward to everybody that it's set <laughs> i didn't expect people to know that the valley of the rocks was a real place in devon for instance but i thought that idea of a small insular rural place um was important to it and for me personally i could visualize the valley of the rocks so it helped me in the writing process but it's absolutely fine if people think it is from another planet and that doesn't that doesn't take away from their enjoyment of the story but i totally agree that if i thought it was set on another planet i would have been there for an extra forty thousand words kind of filling in a lot of gaps and with the first draft where it was kind of like a a community where aliens arrived then i find you're doing a lot of alien building whereas if it's a mushroom well we know what a mushroom is i'm not mushroom building so that you know it's the openness of it as you say that allows me to to be very intense and not have to spend a lot of time dealing with setup and explanation and all of those things you can just crack straight on and sort of grabbing people and exploring the ideas you want to explore so since we're talking about speculative fiction do you have any favorite books or works can be films you know that bridge the divide between this idea of the speculative and and general fiction you know books or, or films that would not necessarily be classed as genre as in fantasy, but might nevertheless exhibit the same sense of exploration um, yeah what I like about the calling things speculative fiction is that it can just it's a bit like weird fiction it's a bit sort of mm -hmm. we don't really know what that is but it's not then it's not quite that so what could be speculative to me could totally not be to somebody else I've talked about this before in places but certainly the first book where I thought I don't know where this is going and I really love that is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier oh it's amazing which Oh, what a book. And um, and you just absolutely glued to it because I just didn't know where it was going to go, what was going to happen. And it transcended kind of ideas of, of what kind of story it should be for me. And then um, later on, I came across, just randomly took out of the library when I was quite young, uh, the first of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis uh, trilogy. That one's called Dawn. And I think most people would say that that's, just sort of science fiction, just science fiction, just absolutely mind-blowingly, you know, political, wide-ranging, far-thinking horror 
oh my gosh, body horror. There's all sorts going on in that book. Um, and then the library couldn't get hold of the other two. So I had to wait for about five years before I could read the rest of the trilogy. So I just had this very strange world kind of in my head for five years going, I wonder what happens. So, um, but yeah, Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy. And also I think formatively kind of Alan Moore writing things like The Ballad of Halo Jones and The Watchman just sort of crossed ideas of what kind of story we were dealing with you know there's a bit of noir or there's a bit of crime or there's a bit of horror or there's there's just so many elements in those books and it refuses to just kind of be labeled for me they're amazing example that's really really good ones actually (laughs) um i was gonna say to to megan charlotte do you guys have any um any favorite works that do similar things well picking up on the octavia butler example i mean kindred was one of those books which you know it's kind of often classified as science fiction but is it really because yeah yeah, i mean there's time travel but it's not really explained and the point of it isn't this any kind of science fictiony kind of stuff about it it's all about the again just asking questions and commenting on yeah slavery and racism and uh, i mean it's these huge issues that she really just plows into amazing isn't it i think she was just an amazing writer yeah, I, that has to be one of my all-time favourite books. Yeah. I think I would probably say um, the later books of Alison Littlewood. So Alison Littlewood sort of started off being, I think it was Richard and Judy's top pick or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wasn't massively keen on that book. Um, and then she did uh, Hidden People, which I thought was very good, but it didn't quite do it for me. But yeah. the Pro Garden that was released, I think it was last year. Oh, my goodness. That's just such an amazing book. It is a horror story. It's a gothic story. It's a story about gender. It's a story about society and particularly how it would deal with women and with um, mental illness. And it is just, if I say it is a story about women told from the single viewpoint of a man, that gives you some idea about how well Littlewood draws her um, characters that she can tell you a whole wealth of stuff about sub- secondary characters that it, through a main character who is completely biased and yeah probably not very nice I'd go with you, you kind of pity him rather than sort of side with him to be honest and for me I just think that that's an amazing book I really love it and I can't quite see where Alison's gonna go after this and, and to talk <laughs> oh, about wow. it. I've not read that one. I've read I've read her earlier books. I'm absolutely going to go and seek that out. That sounds brilliant. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just love these books that take on these huge kind of concepts and do it so well. Absolutely, and like I say, her current book, *The Crow Garden*, is nothing like the um, the first book she did, *A Cold Season*, um, which is very sort of straightforward. Um, supernatural kind of thriller and even some of the short stories you've done have been you know so sort of very horror fixated but the crow garden was just it was just a work of genius i really liked it oh i've written that down i'm going out and getting it good. <laughs> there you are Alison. you owe me a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> um so just a little question to finish off with really um because we were talking about speculative fiction um you're published by um or the beauty and i think uh, the loosening skin as well is published by unsung stories yeah which is a fantastic a uh, small press that I, I really i mean i read um metronome by uh, oliver langmead uh, oh, it's so year. good yeah and it's so good and it's another one of those books that 
that crosses it's difficult to define it and it crosses what you'd say genre boundaries and and it it, it talks about some extremely important um concepts that are very often missing from the, the kind of traditional publisher books we see on on waterstone shelves um so talking a bit about small presses and how important they are you know what's been your experience of working the small press I've just loved it. I, I love the fact that I'm kind of involved um, on a basis. I have been published uh, when I first started writing. I wrote some crime novels and Macmillan published those. And that was a good experience. Um, it's not that it's not that I had a terrible experience, but I was absolutely on the outside of that experience. Um, but I love the fact that I can get right into sort of, you know, feedback on the cover and the editing process and everything. It's, it's kind of really, we're absolutely all committed on getting the best book that we possibly can out there, regardless of how that could then be sold. Um, I do feel for them because then they have to go out and sell it. But, um, you know, from my point of view, the, the feedback I've got from them has always been just write the book you want to write and um, then let us worry about all the other bits and pieces to do with with selling that idea and that that's been so great for me I don't think I could have written the books that I have written without knowing that you know a sympathetic publisher really wants my the me to feel that I can do what I need to do um, is out there so yeah I absolutely love unsung stories I think they're amazing and George is a really nice guy. So, George, if you're listening to this, you're amazing. And he is, he's... needs to go out and buy your fantastic books. Yeah, go buy them all because they're all great, actually. I've read all of them and I, I just just love all of them. And also their commitment to kind of exploring, as we've been talking about, big ideas in different ways. So you mentioned Metronome, but also uh, Dark Star by the same author you know it's kind of epic poetry oh about gosh, science no, fiction and it's still on my list to read but isn't oh, it in blank verse or something it is just oh. the, it just gives me a headache thinking Amazing. about it but he's just done it so well to the point where you forget it's it's blank verse and just read it as this epic struggle of kind of light and dark yeah love that book so but all of their books are just just great so yes please buy the books and support them i think that's a really nice note to end on well, thank you very much for coming along, Aaliyah. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Join us again for another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.